Hey, this is Karen, Coach's Corner Chats, and joining me is Randy Waldrum. Randy, where are you at, and what are you up to? Well, right now, I'm actually sitting in my office overlooking the uh, soccer stadium on a, on a beautiful day in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, you just mentioned coming out of a players' meeting. What has been going on for you at Pittsburgh this spring? Yeah, you know, we just wrapped up our final spring uh, game this last weekend. Um and so this week's kind of uh, what we do at the end of each season is, you know, we obviously bring the players in for individual meetings to kind of go over some things. We want them to go home over the summer and work on some things that they can improve their game and, you know, work to uh, to get them better. So uh, and give them a chance to give us some feedback on how things are going, both in the classroom and on the pitch and life in general at, 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 at Pitt. So um, we're kind of right in the middle of that right now this week. And how long have you been at Pitt now? This completed my fifth year. Yeah, at Pitt, we got in here in 2018, and uh, honestly, we um, we walked into a program that was. It's probably been my biggest challenge. You know, it's uh, maybe I should backtrack a little bit and and give a little history for you there. But you know, I I started out at University of Tulsa, my first D1 job, coaching the men and women. And at that time, I had primarily been on the men's side of the game. Um, and that was late uh, 80s, 1989, I think, when I went to Tulsa. And I kind of fell in love with the women's game at that point in time. That was my first real exposure to, to coaching on the women's side. Um, so I kind of walked into two programs there that had been around a little while. And it was just back in those days, women's soccer was just starting to grow uh, at the D1 level. Um, you know, men's soccer had obviously been around a long time. Um but then I went from there and I started a brand new program at Baylor University. So I was the head coach that kicked that off as a D1 program. Before that, it had always been club soccer. And then obviously left Baylor to go to Notre Dame where they had won a national championship. So I took over a, you know, a program that had this, this national success and I had to make sure I didn't screw it up, you know, and keep it there and hopefully make it better, which I hope we did. And then, of course, I went to the pros with the Dash for a few years and, and then got back in the college game. So getting back to my original point, we took over this program in 2018. And um, a lot of people may, out there may not know it, but this program had been around 22 years and only had had two winning seasons. And when I say winning seasons, they were like 10 and nine one year, you know, or and they were nine and seven one year or something like that. Not this drastic you know, undefeated kind of season. So it was a, a really, really uh, in poor shape when we took it over. So it's been interesting to try to get this thing turned around. And of course, I think we are at a really, really good place now. You know, we finished ranked 12th in the country last year and made it to the Sweet 16. So um, that's kind of a quick history in about two minute span there to, to kind of let you know the, uh, what we're doing here at Pitt and we feel good about the direction we're in now, and and I think we're going to be really good this coming fall. We we, we signed a few uh, a few more players that we think are really going to be game changers for us, and we didn't we didn't lose much. We graduated a right back and a goalkeeper, and other than that, we're 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 uh, we're pretty much all returned. So, looking forward to it and and getting ready, you know, getting ready for that um, uh, this fall. So a couple of questions as to why leave a perennial powerhouse like Notre Dame to go to a program that you know is going to take some work. And then when you first got to Pitt, what were some of the things that you said, I've got to start putting these in place if we're going to have success? Yeah. You know, interesting story because when I was at Notre Dame, you know, we were there 14 years. I think we 
obviously we're in the NCAA tournament every year. And, and I think we played in eight final fours in, out of the 15 years. So it's it basically every other year we were a final four team. And I think we were five championship games out of those eight final fours and, and we won two. So you're right. I probably could have retired there and been quite happy the rest of my life. And, and I was very happy there. I love Notre Dame. Uh, but as every coach, um, and every player, if you really have that competitive drive, you know, you always strive to play at the highest level as a player or you try to coach at the highest level as a coach. And something I always wanted to do is coach national teams or coach in the pros. And, you know, when the opportunity came about um, where I could go back home to my home state of Texas and uh, start uh, coaching the new franchise because the Dash didn't have a team and uh, that opportunity came about, I just thought, you know what? I mean, I could stay here and maybe win more championships, national championships, and keep this going, you know, where we, we've just got it rolling and just kind of finish out and ride into the sunset. Or I can take on that challenge and, and, and fulfill another goal that I had, you know, in a dream. So I just decided at that point, you know, uh, if, if I, I kind of look at it this way, if I died the next day, I could, I, I'm satisfied. I've, I've won national championships at the collegiate level. So I didn't want to ever walk away from the game going, you know what, I had an opportunity to go to the pros and I didn't take it. So I made the jump and actually don't regret it at all. I think it was um, coaching that level of player uh, is exciting. You know, it, it had players like, Janine Becky and Carly Lloyd and Rachel Daly and some world stars, you know, that I had the opportunity to coach and, and, and love that aspect of it. The difference that made me want to come back to the college game was the NWSL. Now, again, it's gotten better. So remember the time I was in it. Um, but, you know, we didn't have our own facility. We didn't have our own locker rooms. We didn't, I mean, I was cutting players and releasing players on a park bench and, you know, we just didn't have the things that we needed. And I was just like, you know what? I had more in college than I have at the pro level. And, you know, it, it was a professional in a professional league, but it wasn't professional in every aspect. There's still a lot of growth that needs to be done in that league. Um, and so the other thing I got a little frustrated with, I think that league is a league for the pros. I mean, for the U.S. national team, it's like they could call your players in at any time and you got to release them, whether it was an international window or not. Um and then when you get into it, a lot of people don't think about this, but three out of your four years as a pro coach, you don't have all your players because the year before World Cup, you're qualifying. So your national team players are always out of out of your camp, you know, out of your environment to go to qualification games and, and camps. Uh, and obviously being in the U.S., they're in a lot. You know, they put a lot of time and investment into uh, qualifying. And then the next year you have the world cup. So your players are gone half the summer and you don't have them very long in the world cup. And then the following year you have the Olympics. So you really only have that next year where you've kind of got your team intact the whole time. And so I had kind of probably made some mistakes and built that team with the dash with a lot of national team players from not only the U S but different countries, not really having the experience and understanding that, wait a minute, three of the four years, you're not going to have the, those players. So you're playing a lot with, you know, your reserves or replacement players and that kind of thing. So it's, it's a different animal. And uh, so I just decided, you know, I'm going to keep my eyes open and get back into the college game. And, you know, I, I would honestly tell you, and I've tell this story to, to people that anybody that will ever listen to me, which is not too many people, but um, 
I never thought five years ago I would be at Pitt because when I was at Notre Dame, Pitt was in a conference and they used to play off campus in this old polo ground and it was horrible. I mean, it was the horses would be on the night before and then you're playing the game and there's ruts and it was in a park and didn't have an atmosphere. And so I never saw the campus at Pittsburgh. When we would come in and play Pitt, we would always play Pitt in West Virginia. So we'd come in and just leave the hotel, go to Pitt. I mean, go to the field play pit and then drive on over to West Virginia. So I never saw campus because uh, it was about 40 minutes off campus. And all I knew was that old feel. And then, like I said, 22 years of losing, they just weren't good. So Pitt's the last place I thought I would be, but the particular year that it came open, it was probably the only job that was like in the ACC in a top, in a top conference. And I noticed that they had hired Jay Vitovich who had been at Wake Forest and won a, a national championship. And he had been at a couple of final fours. He did the same thing I did. He had gone to the pros out in Portland. He was smarter than me. He only stayed a year and he got back in the college game and I saw Pitt had hired him. So I was kind of like, well, something's got to change because the Pitt I know, like you could never get a Jay Vitovich to come in. So when Pitt contacted me about the job, um, I called Jay and I said like, Hey, this is my perception. What's, what's changed. And, we spent two phone calls, probably a couple hours on the phone. And he told me about the new campus stadium and the facilities and a new athletic director and a new push for the Olympic sports because prior everything was in basketball and football. And um, he said, I think it's worth a look. So I got up here and I met Heather like our AD and just fell in love with her vision. And um, I believed in, you know, the direction she was taking. So I said, yeah, let's go for it. It's in a great conference. And, you know, I felt confident, even though they had such a history of losing, that I could still turn it around and build this thing. And uh, so the first thing, going back to your question of what was the first thing I needed to change, is obviously the players. So the first year we were here, I got in so late, the team I inherited, I, I just had to keep it. So the first year we played with the old coaches, players, basically. And they were good kids and good people. They just weren't good enough players for the ACC. And some of them honestly shouldn't have been playing Division One. We didn't win a single conference game. I think we won four games in the year. We probably only scored two or three goals in the conference. We gave up probably 45, 50 goals. I mean, it was like I got a lot of gray hair in 2018. Um, so then the next year, what we did, we I had a chance to recruit. So I kind of blew the team up. We got players that were here off to schools where they could play and we kind of let them know they weren't in my plans. And I brought in 19 new freshmen. So the second year we played with 19 new freshmen and four transfers. So we started nine freshmen. And so we got, took our lumps, but we were better, but we didn't win a lot more games, but we were definitely better and we could compete a little bit more. And we won our first ever game in the ACC and we ended up beating, I think, BC in overtime and beat NC State. So we won a couple of games, which hadn't been done in a while. Um, and then the next year, we turned around, we went 11 games in 2020. And then, you know, the next year in 2021, we went 11 games again and probably should have been an NCAA team in 21. Um, the last game of the season, we beat NC State, which was a ranked team. Um, we were in and out of the rankings that year. Uh, we finished ahead of NC State in the ACC by beating them the last game. But NC State got into the tournament instead of us, basically because they had a great weekend earlier in the year where they'd beaten Carolina and Duke. 
So they had two really big, significant wins. And so they got in over us in 21. But then last year in 22, you know, we made our first ACC conference tournament. We won, you know, we beat teams like Notre Dame and finally beat Virginia Tech and some of the teams that we hadn't been able to beat and, uh, and then made it to the NCAA tournament. And for our first time in, we did quite well. You know, we ended up beating Buffalo the first round and Georgetown in the second and then lost to Florida State in the Sweet 16. So uh, really, really a good turnaround. So we kind of really, even though we've been here five years, it's really been a four-year turnaround for us uh, once we got our players in here in 2019. How important was it to have patience those first couple of years, like especially the first year where you know, like, hey, I know what I need to do, but I can't do it right now. And then even that first year where you had all the new freshmen, yeah. knowing what, how can you sell that to them? Like, even how did you sell it to those freshmen? Like, hey, you're coming to a program yeah. that in two, three years, you're going to see success. Yeah. Well, I think two things happen, and that's great questions, by the way. I think two things probably happened for us. We found some players here in the U.S that um, through connections and contacts that obviously I've made over the years uh, with club coaches and things around the country. So I think um, the selling point really wasn't the program or anything for the history. The selling point was the academics of our university and then trying to sell the kids on the belief that I could get this done. You know, that my staff and I, that we had a good staff and believe in us, we know how to win and we, we were, were going to get this turned around. So I think there were a lot of players we didn't get that we wanted that probably couldn't see that happening. And then I think a lot of the players that we got here in the U.S. just believed in us and they kind of looked at my background and where I've been and, and believed that we we were going to turn the corner. And then obviously the attraction of the ACC, a lot of players just want to go. And a lot of players could look at us at Pitt and say, I want to play in the ACC I'm not good enough to play at Carolina or Florida state, but I could play at Pitt, Right. So that got us some players. And then the last way we really made it happen was uh, through the international market. We went to Canada and really rated Canada, got some, some top kids like Amanda West. It's our all time leading goal scorer and, and about that's a fantastic midfield player. And we got some Canadians and some internationals to help us because recruiting in the college game is uh, two years out in advance. And, we really couldn't wait two years and we had no history to get those players in two years that we really wanted anyway. So we knew we had to, we had to start winning as quickly as we could. So that's the path we took. When did you get the the passion or love of soccer? Were you playing it as a youth? Like when did you get into this whole soccer journey? Yeah. You know what happened with me? It's a little different and I'm going to show some of my age here now. Um, but I grew up in Irving, Texas, and when I was in right out, it's a suburb of Dallas. And when I, um, uh, back when I was young, we didn't have soccer. You know, there was no soccer in Irving, and I didn't even know what, really know what soccer was. So as every kid did, you know, I grew up playing baseball. I wasn't really old enough or big enough to play football, but I played baseball, and uh, you know, was always active and loved sports. And and I was 12 years old, and I can remember going to our local recreational. Um, uh, park there that we had near my house. And there was a Swedish guy there, an older gentleman, a Swedish guy. And he was trying to recruit and start a new soccer league. And, you know, I'm just walking down the hall and he said, Hey, you want to sign up for soccer? And I'm like, yeah, sure. You know, I didn't really know what I was signing up for. So I signed up for it and I just fell in love with it. Cause I'm one of those kind of people that I got to be doing, I got to go, I got to move. I can't sit still. And baseball for me, no offense to the baseball lovers out there, but it's just, 
I just felt like I was in an organized rest sport. You know, I just kind of, you know, you go stand there and maybe in little league, the ball comes to you and maybe it doesn't, you know, kind of thing. And so it was something I could go run and move and play. And of course, um, when he started the league, because there wasn't enough players to make age group leagues, you know, you didn't have an under 10 league and an under 12 back then. It was just like, I was 12. I played against 12 year olds. I played against 17 year olds. They all played in one league, you know, and, but I loved every minute of it and I had some success at it. I was pretty good and we had an all-star team and all that back then. So I just, I really fell in love with it then just because of the action of it. And uh, I really, uh, the gentleman that started it became, you know, my first kind of mentor. I really started listening to him tell stories about his playing days in Sweden. And then I got real fortunate that the high school that I went to as I got a little bit older had a, a uh, local coach named Simon Sanchez, who has passed away years ago, but he really gave me a real love and a passion for the game because he had played professionally and, and he's the one that really built my confidence and turned me into a, a good player. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I was lucky in that, that I, I didn't have just parent coaches that just kind of didn't know much about the game. I had, had some good people that really influenced me at an early age and, just fell in love with it. So I knew even when I went off to college, you know, my, my family was in a local business. My dad and his three brothers owned a sign manufacturing business. So in summers, myself and my cousins and all the family brothers and sisters, that's what you did. You went and worked in the summer at the shop, you know, and, and um, so all my family members kind of went into the family business. You know, I was kind of the one that straight away but I knew even when I got into college you know my first semester I can remember taking business classes and it just I I, I was like the most bored guy on, in, on campus I was like this I, this is not for me I mean I was taking business because I thought I'd go into the family business and I realized you know what I I got I got how do I stay in soccer because I want to do this the rest of my life so back then club soccer wasn't like it is now where they weren't really paying coaches in club soccer back then so the avenue was you coached either in high school or college. So I quickly changed my degree to education and uh, got my teaching degree. So my first coaching job was actually at the high school that I attended. I went to MacArthur High School in Irving and played there and then went off to college, played a couple of years in the pro league. And then when the pro league folded, I went back to teach and I went to teach at the high school that I actually went to. So that was interesting because a lot of the teachers were still there that were there when I was a student. And, uh, but that's, yeah, that's how I made my living is teaching and coaching soccer, uh, at the high school level. So then you're at the high school level. How does it end up that you end up at Tulsa? Yeah. Well, what I made a decision when I, I knew that high school wasn't where I wanted to end. That was kind of my starting place. So I always knew kind of, I've always, I've always been good about having a, a plan and a direction of what I wanted to accomplish. So I knew I wanted at the time to coach in college because that was the next step. And that, that's where I always wanted to coach. So I'd already made my mind up when I got the high school job. I said to myself, I wasn't going to stay longer than five years because if I was there five years, I didn't want to get labeled as, well, he's a high school coach, you know, and I thought if I'm there five years and I can learn a little bit more about my craft and I can uh, have some success with it then hopefully I'll be attractive to a college program. And um, so when it started getting around year four and five, I started keeping my eyes on some of the local colleges. And um, 
I saw back then, of course, we didn't have the, I mean, people, some of the people listening to this podcast are going to think I'm joking here, but back then we didn't have internet, right? So um, you looked at everything through the newspaper and you see the transaction section. And I saw where the University of Tulsa had let their coach go. And I'm thinking, well, that's only four hours away. That's in the South. You know, I can, so I called and randomly, God's looking over me. And I, I'm sure of that this day, but I, I called them and, you know, colleges get, hundreds of applications for those jobs. And I happened to call and somehow actually got through to the AD and it was Rick Dixon was the athletic director at Tulsa and they had just lost their AD. So Rick was an interim AD. And, and I told him, I said, look, you know, Mr. Dixon, what I want is I just wanted to talk to you and I want to meet you face to face. I said, I don't want my resume to be just one of a hundred resumes sitting on your desk. I said, if I can get in my car and drive up there and meet you and I'm willing to pay for everything on my own, will you give me an hour of your time? That's all I'm asking. Just give me an hour to get in front of you. And he's like, yeah, sure. Come on. And so I got in my car and drove up to Tulsa and he met me and that hour turned into about six or eight hours over that day. And the next day, just getting to know each other and visiting. And then he brought me back in later officially for an interview and, um, Interesting enough, the night of um, the night before I had to go to the committee, I had dinner with he and his wife. And after dinner, he hands me this piece of papers. I'm leaving and I'm like, what's this? And he goes, I want you to do well because you're my choice, but I want the committee to, 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 to choose you. Here's the questions you're going to be asked tomorrow. So be prepared. And, uh, and you know, the rest is history. So I went in and, and got that job and uh, was fortunately in, in the same timetable, it was my fifth year in high school and it just worked it. I just transitioned right into that. And, um, you know, along the way, I'd also, when I was in high school, I'd coached a little bit at some small NAI schools as, as a coach, just part-time, you know, picking up some college experience to get on my resume. And, and so that worked, uh, worked out really well. And then from there, things just took off for me, you know. One of the things that popped up in my head was, what was the conversation like with your parents when you said, I'm going to go away from the family business. I'm going to go after this dream of mine, this passion. Well, I, I'm very lucky that I always had parents that always supported, you know, not only myself, but I have a brother, an older brother and a younger sister. So, you know, they were, they were really supportive. I do think my dad, I can remember my dad being a little concerned, like, like, how are you going to make a living in soccer? Like, I mean, there's not, you know, back then, the leagues, you know, the, the pro leagues were non-existent because the NASL had folded and there was no M M MLS. And, and it was, you know, it just wasn't something that looked real promising that you could really make a, a living out of it. Uh, so I can remember having some conversations of just some concern on that, but they, they supported it. It was never a, um, you know, a, a bad situation or confrontational because I wasn't going in the family business. I think they knew where my love really was. And, and, um, you know, although they never really, my dad worked all the time. So they really, they didn't really even watch my games much as a youth player. They, they came and saw me a little bit more in college than they saw my, any of my youth career just because they worked so much. Um, but they loved the game. They didn't really know it, but they loved watching me play and they knew, you know, they knew my passion was there. So it, that went fairly smoothly. I'd have to say. Yeah. So at Tulsa, you mentioned earlier, you coached both the men's and women's. Yeah. How do you balance that and do two programs at the same time? And yeah. 
what were some of the differences and similarities between dealing with the female program and the male program? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, back in those days, a lot of the programs had uh, the same coach coaching too. Um, so it wasn't uncommon back in those days, but it was really difficult because what I kind of inherited is um, both cro both programs were in a little bit of a different place. Like the men were a little bit better at the time than the women's program. And um, so, and I didn't have full-time assistance. They gave me two GAs. So what I would do on back then you played, Friday, Sundays, you know, the men played Friday, Sunday, and so did the women. So I would, if we were at home, it was not an issue. Uh, we just play back to back double headers. But if we were on the road, it was an issue, especially if we weren't at the same place, you know? So what I would do is I'd go with the men say on a Friday with one GA, I'd send the other GA with the women. That person would take the Friday game with the women. I had the Friday game with the men. Then I'd catch a plane on Saturday and I'd fly to the other side and, and I'd go over to the other team on a Sunday, you know, and then what happened is that worked for a while, but then we started getting both programs pretty good, which really demanded both programs really in fairness needed my time, you know, and not a, not an grad assistant. And so it got more and more difficult. And I really challenged Tulsa to split the programs and let's bring another coach in. And of course, as it happens when you're there doing it and for the pay that you're doing, a lot of people would probably be shocked. I think I can remember getting that job doing both programs and I made $20,000 a year, you know. And uh, so it was just one of those that it started getting to a point where it really wasn't fair to either program because the men had been we'd gotten them into an NCAA tournament. The women were right on the verge of being NCAA tournament ready. And it then it got to where the players started having an issue with it that I couldn't you know, invest more in, in each program. And it just, it really was getting to a point that when the Baylor job opened, the timing probably was right because it really, what it did then when I left Tulsa, then Tulsa split the programs and then they hired two coaches. So for the program at Tulsa, it was probably a good time for me to have left. Um, and uh, so it benefited that program in that regard. And then it gave me the chance to go do something from scratch, you know, not having any players and, now, all of a sudden, I've got four months. I was hired in January, and we're going to be playing a season in, in August. So I had eight months and le or less to get a team, get them developed, and, you know, be ready be ready to play a, a Big 12 schedule. One of the things that keeps kind of resonating in my head is, like, problem solving. You seem like you like challenges and then building something from nothing, like literally Baylor – you come into pit, yeah. uh, the Houston dash, like everything yeah. seems to always, you're always looking for something that I can take to the next level and grow, you even gr grew Tulsa. So yeah. what was it about Baylor that you're like, yes, let's go do this. And th the next step in your journey. Well, I had made the decision after Tulsa that I really wanted to be in the women's game because then my next, I'm always looking for the next step. My next step was I want to coach a national team. Of course, back then there was no pro, pro women's soccer. So the next step from college was a, to coach a national team. And I looked at the men's side and said, that's kind of a good old boys network. They keep recycling the same coaches. That's going to be hard to break in. And then I really enjoyed coaching the women, more so at the college level than the men, because uh, there weren't a lot of good coaches on the women's side back in those days. And it was like all they wanted is somebody that cared and they wanted to learn. They were such – uh, so passionate about learning to play the game the right way. And the men sometimes are kind of like at that level and college level, like they kind of know it, you know, they got, I, I got it, you know, coach, I don't really need the input. And I just enjoyed the women's game more. So the hardest decision was going 
what happens if I just go to the women's game and give up the men's and then I don't really like it. You know, I get there a year or two and I realize mm, I don't really want to be, how hard would it be to get back into the men's game? So I was, cause back then it was really separate. There wasn't men's programs didn't really support the women's programs like they do today. So that was a real big dilemma in my head of making that jump. But I just finally came to the conclusion of going, no, if I want to reach my goals and I actually enjoy coaching the women better, I'm just going to make the move. So two things with Baylor that they offered is one is double the money. So I was, I was going from 20,000 to 45,000. And back in those days, I thought I was a rich man. You know, that was, that was great. And then the fact that I was only going to coach one program, I could invest all my time in one program in the women's game. And so that's kind of why I made that decision. And then also it was back home in Texas, which, keep me close to family and everything else. So that's, that's kind of why I took on that challenge. And, and again, it was uh, a great, great uh, experience. I was there three years. We won 17 games. Our first year is a brand new program. I think we went 17 and three the next year we were in the NCAA tournament. And the third year we had won the big 12 and gone deep, you know, a couple of rounds into the NCAA tournament. So we won the first uh, big 12 championship for any sport at Baylor university was that women's soccer team in 1996. So, uh, and then the, the, an interesting uh, thing happened is my dream job growing up in Texas was always university of Texas. Don't know why, but I always loved UT football and everything. You know, if you're in Texas, you're either A&M or you're, you're Texas, right? You know, a longhorn. So I always wanted to coach at Texas. Well, after we'd done so well, the Texas job came open and they called me and I'm going, great. This is my dream job. So they brought in two candidates, myself, Chris Petroselli, who was the coach at Notre Dame. And I'm going, he just won a national championship a year or so ago. There's no way Chris is leaving Notre Dame to Texas. I'm thinking, Hey, Randy, you got this job wrapped up. Right. And then I get the phone call. Hey, sorry, coach, but we were going another route. Right. And I, I, I just couldn't, you know, I was like for two days, I was just like devastated because I, my dream job had gone. And then the third day after Notre Dame called, hey, Randy, are you interested in coming to Notre Dame? And I was like, well, yeah, hello, you know. So I go up and then I, I take that program over. And, you know, like I said, Chris had developed them to winning a national championship. And then that challenge then was keeping a top program as a top program and trying to improve it. And I think we did. You know, we, like I said, we we won a lot of games and and won two more national championships to add to their trophy case. And so it ended up working out and being a great move because that, that probably Notre Dame at the time, you know, we were always better than Texas anyway. And it was one of those things that, you know, uh, when I was there, we were one of the top two or three teams in the country, you know, every year. So it opened doors for national teams and pro teams and everything else for me. So I, I, I owe, uh, owe, owe that move to Notre Dame uh, a lot. Yeah. What was that experience of, so you've gone from Baylor where you started from the foundation and built it to now going to Notre Dame, which is pretty much all solidified. How do you take a program that's successful and continue to make improvements? Yeah. Well, I've always, as a coach, had a vision of how I think the game should look and should be played. So I think that's one of my strengths is putting together, a you know, what coaches call a game model and putting together a game model. but but being able to communicate that and to, to a place that our players can understand. And I saw with Notre Dame, the talent that was there. Um, I came in and didn't make 
drastic changes initially because I inherited a group that had won a national championship. But over time, implemented, you know, the way I wanted to play. The hardest part, to be honest with you, as a coach, was going from a, a program of like Baylor, where we'd started with no expectations. And very quickly in three years, we'd won a conference championship and then made it to the second round of the NCAA tournament. So it was one of those um, situations where I really, I could coach and be free. I never once ever felt like, there was pressure, you know, because I far exceeded any expectations at Baylor. Um, Notre Dame, from a coaching perspective, for those coaching listening, listening, uh, that some will understand this, but it's um, now I'm going to a program that I'm going, there's high expectations. And now you have to win or you're not going to be here very long. So that was probably the biggest adjustment for me is coping and dealing with those expectations and making sure that standards didn't drop and we stayed high and, you know, we, we stayed competitive on the national stage. And, you know, that first year we made it to the national championship game. We lost to Carolina in the final that year. And, and um, you know, which set the tone that we were going to be able to sustain it at least and keep it and let them feel like they hired the right coach, you know, to come in. But that's probably the biggest thing I had to deal with is just making sure I didn't let that program go down. So that's a different kind of pressure than building one up. You mentioned numerous times kind of having a vision, like my next step. Have you always been kind of goal oriented and had a plan? Are you a person that likes to have things in a certain, like, that's how we're going to do it. Yeah. Here's how we get from A to B. Here's the steps along the way. Yeah, I am. I'm very much driven that way, uh, ambition and passionate about what I do. And I have a way that I think it should be done. Now, when I take my actual coaching, you know, the X's and O's part, I'm very open to, you know, there's a way I want to play, but as coaching, the game evolves and it's quite different now than when I was at Tulsa, you know, so I, I, you have to adapt and you have to adapt to the game changing. And so I'm always open and willing to learn. And one of the things that really helped me in my coaching evolution was I got on staff of U.S. soccer where I became an instructor for our license program. So I would teach the A and B and C courses. And so I'm around some of the best coaches in the country. So even though we're teaching the courses during the daytime to other coaches that are taking their license at nighttime, we're sitting around in rooms as a staff and we're kicking high level ideas around. And I, I'm picking, you know, we got the salt shakers and the sugar packets and we're out, you know, we're doing tactics on a, on the, on the, on the table at night. So I was lucky to be around a lot of really, really top coaches to help me, you know, grow and, uh, growing my my craft and and improve you know as a coach because once you kind of think you know it and your way is the only way and it's the right way and that's the only thing you're going to do and you're not going to change then you've you've probably lost at that point you know if I'm ever like that I need to get out at that point so so we're doing things here at Pitt now that we didn't do at Notre Dame like our game model is so much more uh, sophisticated now than even what I had at Notre Dame uh, because the times today you know kind of demand it and the games evolve more and we know more about the game. I see some of my guys at Tulsa, I stay in touch with a lot, you know, all my ex-players a lot. And I, I have to apologize to them because in Tulsa, I can remember, you know, back in those days, preseason, you just ran, you know, you ran them to death. I mean, if you made them puke, then it was a good day. You know, it was a hard day. And of course now, you know, 20, 25, 30 years later, you're looking at it going, well, now we understand a little bit more about sports science and we know the the rest part is as important as the work part. And back then we didn't, you know, and it's, 
it's kind of like I'm seeing them now and I'm going, guys, I'm so sorry. I, I'm so sorry that, you know, that I worked you like I did back then. And But that's that's the part of the game evolving. So I, I stay open-minded with that, but I do have a way I want to play and what I think the game should look like. Um, so I think uh, that's been a strength because I think it's – the ed- that's where going to school and getting an education degree helped me too because what we are as coaches, we're really – teachers with a whistle you know we do our teaching out on the field during the week and so that's the part I love the most get me out on the field get me teaching get me working with players that's that's the part I love what was it like to to go from I called Tulsa I said I'll come to you to now we look forward and now the Pitts and the Notre Dames are coming to you and ask you to come how cool is that that kind of growth that you've had where people now look at you as person that they want to call versus you having to go to them. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, I, I don't really think about that too much. Um, you know, like I said, I just feel like I've been really blessed with being around a lot of good people. And one of the things I've always believed in is I've had people that's helped me along the way, guys like Shellis Heinemann, um, you know, um, Glenn Myrnick when he was still alive, um, you know, Simon Sanchez is my youth coach. Like there was just a lot of people in my life that's helped me a lot. And so I've always believed in giving back to the game. So when coaches call me and say, Hey, what do you think? Like any young coach up and coming, I'm willing to give them time. I'm willing to give them ideas because uh, we're all trying to grow this game. You know, I want to win, but, it, but I also want to win big and, and mean, meaning that I want this sport to be great in this country. So I just always, so I, I haven't really thought about, you know, hey, then now they're calling you, you must be this big deal or anything, because I'm not, you know, I'm just a guy trying to do a good job at what I do. Um, and I think it's just been a culmination of um, being around good people that I think have made me a pretty good coach over the years and uh, earning a little bit, at least a level of some respect in some corners. There's others that probably don't. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's, um, I, I'm still at my age, I'm still learning, you know, I'm still trying new things. I see something on the internet or I see something that another coach has done and I look at it and I go, Hey, you know, how can I make that work for me in a way that I want to use it with my team? So as long as I've got that idea, I think it's, um, you know, we still get better at what we can do. And I always feel like I haven't, I haven't gotten there. You know, I'm always striving to get there. I think the moment I think I've gotten there is I'm definitely out, you know, cause it's, I'll never get there. I, I won't. I getting perfect or becoming the top coach or a top coach. I know I'll never get there. What drives me is that strive to get there. That's, that's the part I love. Yeah. The other thing I love is that you're still reaching back and connected with players and coaches from Tulsa and I'm sure at Baylor and Notre yeah. Dame, how important is that to continue to go even beyond the four years that you work with some of the players or the coaches that have been on staffs and move on? How important is it to continue? You just talked about young coaches reaching out to you and taking time. Why, yeah. why put that effort in and how important has that been to keeping those relationships rolling? Well, two things I learned and a lot of this just comes with age. So for any young coach that may be listening to this, podcast, I would say this, when I was a young coach coaching high school, and probably even when I first got at Tulsa, it was all about winning. You know, I just need to win. I need to build my resume. I want to be known as a successful coach. And it was all about, um, always about the result and winning. And as I got older, 
it became it just like we do as parents. You know, we get, you know, we're, we're, when we're first married, you know, we, we live life one way and then you have kids and that changes your life dramatic, you know, dramatically. And so as I have gotten older, I've learned to realize and appreciate what I do in coaching is not just about winning games. I'm not going to be judged on how many games I want at the end of the day. But as a young coach, I thought that's the way you're judged. You're successful and that's in wins and losses or you're not successful. As I've gotten older, I've come to realize how important it is that we're influencing the players that we coach. So we make them better as not only players, but better as people so they can go on and do great things in this world, you know, to make, make it all a better place for us. So I've, I've really learned over, over time that those relationships that you have with your players have become very important. So, um, you know, for over the years, in my early years, when I didn't build those kind of relationships, like I should have, uh, those players, you know, you, you, you feel bad about, you know, and, and, um, but as I've gotten older and learned that it is important that you, um, you see how they're doing in the classroom and you see how they're doing in their outside life. And there's more to it than just playing this game and putting it more in a perspective. I think it's, you know, I've just matured and become a much better coach over the last 30, you know, 30 years that I've been in this game and, and um, coaching at the college level. So it's really important. I get as big of a kick out of seeing, you know, our, my former players have, have their own kids and what they're doing with their lives and, the differences they're making in the professions that they've chosen. I like that really brings more of a smile now on my face than winning championships. I mean, don't get me wrong. I still love winning. I'm still highly competitive and I want to win more, but um, you know, the hard part about it, and, and this might be coaches might not really think this if they've not achieved that, but I can tell you this winning the two national championships in Notre Dame. I remember both those games vividly. I can replay those moments and I remember how I felt and I remembered exactly what it was like. And don't get me wrong. That feeling is amazing out of this world. It's great, but that feeling didn't last very long. You know, it's like, okay, we won. Now I got to get ready for next year. I got to hit the road and recruit again. I so you don't get to enjoy it. You know, you honestly, to me, the, the losses stay with me longer than the enjoyment of the wins you know the losses bother me more and they stay with me and they linger more so you don't get to enjoy it as much as one might think you do if you want to continue to stay there if you want to win one and then just rest on your laurels and get out then i guess you can enjoy it for a long time but if you really want to keep it going you want it but the world didn't stand still because you want it everybody else is out there working trying to make their teams better so they can knock you off so you've got to get right back to work and get on the horse and start thinking about it again so that that part uh really uh, really changed but um like i said those those relationships you can't you can't replace uh that you have with the players you mentioned earlier thinking about coaching at the national level and on the men's side it seemed like the same faces kept popping up but then there's the women's side is that something that you go after and take advantage of at some point and do some type of national coaching yeah, I did. After after Tulsa and, and Baylor, I, once I was at Baylor, I kind of got the opportunity to be brought into some of the youth national teams. I worked back when Shannon Higgins was a U18 coach. I came in and assisted her a little bit. Lauren Gregg was the U, back then it was a U21 team, not the U23 team like it is now. But uh, I came in and assisted her a little bit and then got connected with Tony DeChico and some of those guys. So got called in a little bit to help with some of the senior team camps. And then I actually took on 
the U21s as the head coach for two years. I was in charge of that once I got to Notre Dame. And, you know, so I, I got involved with that end of it. Um, got the opportunity at one point when I was at Notre Dame to coach the, uh, to interview for the full team, but they ended up giving the job to Tom Sermani and, and, um, um, which was a great choice too. At the time, there was a couple of us that I thought were, would be really good candidates for it. But, you know, I got lucky, I got the doors, having contacts with people around the country, some of the top people around the world. I had met Lincoln Phillips, who was out of the Baltimore, Maryland area, and he's Trinidadian and Tobago uh, background, you know, uh, his his native land. And so he became the general secretary of Trinidad and Tobago. And he called and wanted me to come coach their youth national team, their U-17. So I tried to take their U-17s to World Cup qualifying and then a few years later, his son became the, the general secretary. And so back in 2014 and 15, they called me again to come back and take the senior team through World Cup qualifying, uh, which I did. So I kind of got that international experience of coaching a national team, which I loved. Um, and then, you know, just a couple of years ago with the Nigerian national team, um, Sunil Galati was the president at the time at U.S. Soccer. So obviously coaching in the U.S. Soccer Federation for so many years at the different levels. He, I got to know him and he just called me out of the blue one day and said, Hey, I'm friends with the president of Nigeria and they're looking for a coach. Do you, would you be interested? And I said, yeah, absolutely. I'd be interested. And that was kind of after I left the, the dash and was kind of in between jobs. And so that's when the door opened and ironically it opened for me. Um, <laughs> actually came out in the media that I'd already accepted the job, you know, in the Nigerian media before I'd ever spoken to anybody from Nigeria. And that was around September. And then I went two or three months and never heard from the Federation, never got a contract, never had a discussion about it. And then the pit job came open. And so I took the pit job because I hadn't heard from Nigeria. And then as soon as I took the pit job in November, then they called like, Hey, we saw you took a job. No, don't, don't we, you're, you're here with Nigeria. And I'm like, I can't, I, you guys never got in touch and we never worked a deal out. So I took pit. And then a year or two later, the coach that Nigeria had ended up hiring instead of me left. So then they called me back. And I said, well, the only way I'll do it is uh, because one of the things I knew about Nigeria is they're bad about paying. And, you know, it's not the best country to live in, I guess, in some ways, you know, from from what I'm used to here. And uh, so I said I would take the job, um, you know, provided I can keep this job. And the reason I knew I could do it is because my son is my assistant head coach here. He's been with me for years, so he knows my ways here. So I was comfortable the time I'd have to be away from here to go into Nigeria with him running. And had I not had him here, I wouldn't have been able to do it. But my AD was very supportive of it. And they're very community uh, oriented and community service and that kind of thing. And, you know, it opens it would open some doors for me internationally recruiting, which it has. And also she saw the benefit in gaining coaching experience at the international level too. So it's been, um, it's been good. This it's been challenging because it's been two and a half, three years now of doing it, but you know, the world cup will kind of finish it off for me and then I'll come back to being at pit. Yeah. What has that experience been? Like you talk about Nigeria being, it's a completely different culture yeah. kind of mindset. And you've talked about having your clear way if you like to play and then there's communication, like what yeah. things have you run into and what, what things have worked and what things you have to keep getting better at? Yeah. Constant roadblocks. If I'm being honest with, with Nigeria, because, um, you know, I know how the U S runs things and it's more of a, 
the U.S. mentality is more of what do you need to win? You know, we'll 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 we'll, we'll get it provided. What do you need? You know, uh, tell us, coach. And Nigeria is more like we're doing it our way, and you've got to adapt to us. And so you've got some cultural things and some uh, some things you have to adapt to because it's obviously uh, women and women in sport. There, Nigeria's treatment wise is different than it is here in the U.S. And then you kind of got to go over and start to learn a little bit about the culture because how you manage the team and how you manage the players is a little bit different because there's some cultural things that are, are different between uh, the two countries, but the football part is football. I mean, it's, you know, it's the same game we're all playing. So, uh, you know, what I had hoped is I could come in in these three years and show them some better ways to do some of the things that they're doing, not to change what they're doing, but go think about doing it this way and, and make it better. And what's been a little frustrating is to be honest with you is they haven't really, they're not interested in that. It's just go coach the team, you know, and they're not looking to make the change. So you're always running into roadblocks there administratively there's, there's hurdles. You know, we, we, we get ready for an event and, you know, I'll call for 23 players to come in and then last minute they're telling me, you know, well, five or six can't come because we can't get a visa for those players or whatever. And, you know, you find out they started two weeks before getting visas and where they had three months to be doing it and it wasn't done, you know, or just more logistical administrative roadblocks that I've continued to run into. And, and, um, you know, so it's been, it's been, it's been a challenge. Um, but I've enjoyed it. The players have been fantastic and, um, very talented, uh, a lot of talent there. In fact, we recruited one of the players to, to pit that will be coming in this fall. Uh, for our program here at Pitt. So um, it, it's been um, it's been good, but it's been a challenge. And of course, we don't have the financial resources that the top countries in the world have. So, you know, we'll go into the World Cup with myself and three assistant coaches, whereas the U.S. will go with 21 or 22 coaches and, you know, England and, you know, all the top teams have, you know, massage therapists and video analysts and, you know, you name it, they've got it, mental uh, sports psychology coaches and everything else. And Nigeria is just not going to fund that. You know, they're just, you've you got a few coaches that help you on the field and that's it. You know, everything, you got to do everything. You've got to do the video analysis. You got to do your own scouting. You got to do your own, um, you know, fit, keeping up and reading the data on fitness and worrying about training loads and all that stuff. So it's, it's, it's a challenge. I, I will tell you, but uh, I kind of knew what I was getting into when I took it. The one thing I loved was you mentioned coaching with your son. What's that experience been like, not just as coaches, but as a father-son combination? Is it hard sometimes to split the two? Um, and how has that kind of helped grow that relationship that the two of you have? Yeah, well, it's it's been great because it started out at a really young age, you know, with him. When, when he first started playing soccer, you know, I just was a parent. I just went on the sidelines and, and watched him play. And I can remember – you know, people going, hey, when are you, you going to – why aren't you coaching your, your son's team? It's like, you know, when he's ready that he wants dad to coach, he'll say something, but I'm not going to force this on him, and I, I just want him to grow a love for the game. So at about 10, maybe 10 years old or so, he came to me and said, Dad, hey, when you, you coach everybody else, when are you going to coach my team? And so I said, okay, I'll, I'll coach your team. So, you know, and that's always difficult too because you got the father-son thing and you got to make sure you separate that part – for 
from playing time, like who deserves it and who earns it and that kind of now at the youth level, you're trying to get everybody playing time to, for development, but you know, everybody still at the, in youth soccer still competitive. You got to win that trophy, you know, and, or else they leave your team and they go somewhere else. So I, we, you and I could have another podcast about youth soccer in here one day, but um, you know, so we, we were always close with this. The, the football part was always been the, obviously the big connection within our family. And um, um, so uh you know, I brought him on board for a few years with me at Notre Dame and uh, our first national championship, he was on our staff when we won. So that was really cool having a, both of us getting to win a championship together. And then he kind of got in his coaching education. He kind of got to a point of like, I'm ready to do my own thing now. Right. Instead of being working for you. So he left and went to back to Dallas and he took on some couple of different youth clubs over seven or eight years. He, he was, uh, one of the directors of the ECNL program at FC Dallas and had a lot of top kids there and had a lot of success, but he was getting his feet wet as his own head coach and learning, you know, learning how to manage parents and things because coaching is so much more than just being on the field. You know that, you know, it's dealing with parents and administrations and all kinds of things, you know, so um, he got his feet wet there. And then I brought him in with me to Trinidad. So he got some international experience there at Trinidad. I brought him in a few times here with me with Nigeria. Uh, but what happened is when I got the pit job is, you know, I went back to him and said, Hey, can I, can I lure you away? I'm going to need some help here and really getting this thing turned around. So, uh, so we, we had some time together early in his coaching career and then he went off and did his thing. And now he come, came back. And so it's really good because we both really see the game the same way. And, you know, growing up, he knows what I want. He knows the, the way we want to play. And and he's become a very, very good coach. And honestly, these la- last couple of years, um, I was getting ready to say between you and I, and then I realized this podcast is going out to a lot of people. So it ain't going to be between you and it ain't going to be between you and I, but really these last couple of years, he's pretty much runs the show. I mean, we're both out on the field coaching and I'm still doing my work there, but in terms of, Think running things on game day and making substitutions and changes he's pretty much done it and you know he may say hey what do you think about this and i you know i, I i'll give him my two cents worth but he's 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 really been kind of running things here and you know I, i'm really lucky to have him because he he could he could go anywhere and do a do a really good job so it's been it's been a lot of fun you mentioned way at the beginning when you were thinking about going to pit you gave the woman's coach a call and you even talked about back in the day where the women's programs and the men's programs just kind of ran on their own and didn't have much interaction. Uh, how important is that to one have like an AD who sees things similar to how you want to do things, community focus and all that. We're trying to turn the whole athletic program around and then yeah. to have someone on the women's side who you can bounce ideas off of and have that positive relationship. I think it's today's game. It's, it's vital that you've got a good relationship with the, the men's program and with your athletic director. And what happened with, you know, just to give you an example, one of the reasons I knew it was the right place for me when I was meeting with our, our athletic director, meeting with Heather, you know, I asked her about the budget and, you know, could she show me the numbers and scholarships and all those things that are important. She goes, Randy, I'll get you all that. Don't worry. She said, we're funded the way you need to be funded and all that. She said, I'll get that to you. She said, but what I would be hiring you for is this. You'll be one of our only coaches beside our men's soccer coach that's won a national championship. So you need to tell me what you need to win because I'm tired of being bad in women's soccer. So tell me what you need. And at that point I knew, okay, we, we've got something. So there were some facility things that we needed some upgrades on and we, which we've already done within my, 
first couple of years she started, she held true to her word and, um, you know, made those changes. Um, but I think that's vitally important because uh, a lot of coaches are coaching in programs around the country that just have programs because they have to have them. You know, they're not really invested in trying to win and be better. It's just, you know, they got to have so many programs with Title IX and so, or it's soccer and they're going to invest more in their, their revenue sports and not as much in their Olympic sports. So I wanted to be at a place that really had a shared vision that wanted to win and wanted to compete for national championships. And, and Heather clearly has that. And if you look, anybody that knows anything about Pitt, if you look at us over the last five years, she hired seven new coaches when I came in, fired seven and brought seven new in. And almost every program now is a, is a nationally ranked program, which they weren't before. So we, we made drastic changes, not only in our program, but in all the programs. But then it's very important too, because we share a facility, which is the case in any program that's got a men and women's team, you're sharing facilities. So it's just imperative that you got a coach that you really on the other, in the other program that you can go to and bounce ideas off, uh, but also work on just the logistics things of scheduling games and scheduling practice times and all of that. And if that situation weren't good, it would, it would be a, uh, it'd be a really hardworking environment, I think. And, and I was lucky in both places that I've coached, you know, Baylor, we didn't have a men's team. So that was easy. But when I went to Notre Dame, we had a men's team. And, but I was fortunate that I worked alongside Bobby Clark, a uh, true gentleman in the men's game and, and a great, great coach. So he was easy to work with. So I was really lucky there. And then when I got here to Pitt, I've got Jay Vitovich, and he's just the same. You know, we're we're right next door. I'm always going in. I'm I can my my windows overlook our practice field. So I watch his practices in the morning and see what he does. And I'll go in his office and say, Hey, I saw you doing this. You know, like what was it? Tell me, explain to me what you were doing. And so we're always bouncing ideas off of each other, and that makes it great because it's a he's got a very good program. They've been in the final four two of the last three years and and uh, so you know like I said I'm not I'm not too old to learn and and uh, so it that's been a, it, I just think you have to have that in today's world in, in college athletics you have to be able to work together with uh, with your men's coach last thing I'll ask about is so now you're at Pitt we're making great progress and you're that goal-oriented person that says I've got a vision I see where I'm headed yeah is pit the final stop or are you kind of like i'm just building and i'll see where i'm at you talked about maybe building a legacy is pit the kind of the spot that you want to be the cherry on top of the sunday yeah i think i'm getting close to it being the final spot because number one my age i don't know if i left here and tried to go somewhere else how many how many ad's want to you know somebody that's you know at my age i'll just leave it at that uh uh you know but um you know, I love it here and, and, and would love to love to win a national championship here and being able to do it at two schools in a, in such a highly regarded conference like the ACC. Um, you know, so I, I would never say never that I wouldn't leave here and that this is definitely my final spot. But as we sit here today, I would say this is probably the final place for me uh, from the standpoint of um, I've kind of been at the pro level. I've been at the international level now. I'll get a chance now to coach in a world cup, which is obviously a dream come true. And so there's not much else to do other than get out of the coaching part and do something else. And I, I, I can't ever see myself doing that. So I think right now Pitt's probably, uh, probably my landing spot. This chat has been so awesome. It will shut it down. This is Karen with coaches corner chats with Randy Waldrum and I'm out. Peace.
What a great chat. Thanks for checking it out. If you haven't done so already, follow us on Twitter at Coaches Let's Chat. Hit that subscribe button. And once again, if you get a chance, drop a review. It's super, super helpful for growing the podcast. Have a good one. Peace.